This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. Um, good evening and welcome. Uh, I know that there are still people making their way in, uh, but I want to make sure that we get started in time uh, to uh, leave ample time for questions. Um, I've asked uh, uh, Associate Dean of College of Arts and Sciences, John Pell, to be um, of help tonight. Uh, he's going to be passing out uh, three by five cards um, that are your opportunity to write questions. We're going to have written questions tonight uh, at the end. I'm going to be sorting through them not to uh, keep the hard questions off the table. Our point is uh, that our guest tonight will be uh, willing to answer uh, pointed questions about their views, but just to see where the questions are clustering up so that we can make sure to get the uh, questions that are on most people's minds uh, answered. And uh, so John's going to be passing those out. Um, as a question occurs to you as the evening goes on, please um, write it on a card. If you're a student, would you write student at the top of your card? Because I want to give first place in question um, framing uh, to the students in the audience. And so uh, I'm happy to have, if you're a, um, a faculty member or a staff member from Whitworth or a uh, person from the community, feel free to write a question on a card. It's just that I, uh, I'd like to be able to make sure that the students get their questions answered. My name is Carol Simon. I'm the uh, provost of Whitworth, and uh, I uh, used to, before I was a provost, uh, be a philosopher. And so I was uh, commenting at dinner. It's been so uh, wonderful uh, here from my point of view because I've gotten to um, engage in uh, philosophical conversation that I don't often uh, have time to in my current role. So um, let me introduce our speakers and we'll get underway. Um, Dr. Um, Bertha Alvarez Menenen, Menenen, Menenen. Menenen uh, and Jack Mulder have jointly authored a book called uh, Civil Dialogue on Abortion. It's published by Rutledge, which is a, a very well-known academic press. Uh, Dr. Manenen uh, is an associate professor of philosophy at Aristona's are Applied Ethics, Bioethics, Philosophy in Film, and Philosophy of Religion. She has published articles in many journals, including the Journal of Medical Ethics, the Journal of Applied Philosophy, American Journal of Bioethics, Journal of Religion and Film, Journal of Religious Ethics, and Hypatia, a journal for feminist philosophy. Uh, Dr. Mulder teaches philosophy at Hope College. His research and teaching interests are in philosophical and Catholic theology, uh, sexual and reproductive ethics, and philosophy of race. He's the author of um, What Published by Erdman's and Kierkegaard and the Catholic Tradition uh, from Indiana University Press. And he's currently working on um, a project uh, related to trying to think philosophically 
about uh, the Catholic doctrine of uh, the Virgin Mary. And so uh, he has wide-ranging interests. Um, as background for the dialogue, it would be great to hear uh, about how your book came about. And I'd like to frame uh, this um, by asking a pointed question of each of you. Um, since you've co-authored a book on abortion with a man, you must believe that the effort was not wasted. Um, that is, you must think that men can, and in some cases, um, at least in some cases, enter into the discussion surrounding abortion. How would you respond to someone who argued that men should not have a say at all where it concerns abortion? So first of all, thank you so much for inviting us, and thank you for all to take, it's Monday, and that's the beginning of the week, so I'm very happy and flattered that you're here. Um, really quick, insofar as how the book came about, there's, um, how long ago was this, about four years? And it's, uh, they, they video, it's videotaped of two philosophers arguing about a perspective, and then you can watch philosophers go at it. And so we did, we did one on abortion for philosophy TV, and then when, we, when it was done, we're like, man, you know, we should really write that down. Uh, and then we did, and that's what became of this. Um, so, uh, men and abortion. So, like, insofar as abortion has philosophical components, uh, I think that anybody, you know, and man or woman, um, can contribute to the conversation. So questions about what does it mean to be a person, our fetus is person, what is a right, uh, how do we understand rights, um, if you have a right to bodily autonomy and a right to life and they compete, which one goes first, right? Those are philosophies that relates to abortion. I do think there are things about abortion that are uniquely uh, important to men. I had, I've had male students in my class talk about how um, they were, there was one student in particular who had a situation where him and his girlfriend, or his girlfriend got pregnant, they were gonna have the baby, they were gonna keep the baby, and then they got a test saying that, showing that the child probably had Down syndrome, and the woman, the girlfriend got an abortion even though he didn't want to, and he really wanted to keep the baby and raise the baby. And he talked about how it really affected him, um, and how he, he felt horrible every day that he didn't do more to protect you know, a being that he already considered to be his child. And you know, he was hurting, and I do think that when people are hurting, we should listen to them. So uh, I do think there are places where men can have a conversation about abortion. I think the general reticence about including men in the abortion discussion is women are growing increasingly by people who the issue does not directly affect and who sometimes aren't even very familiar with the issue itself. So people who are making laws and policies and have no idea what they're talking about. Right? So the question, the examples I put up is, um, Republican Representative Todd Aiken, who argued that uh, very few cases of rape result in pregnancy because, quote, if it's legitimate rape, the female body has a way to shut it down. And then there was Ohio Representative John Becker, who claimed that, um, that uh, atopic pregnancies can be fixed by, by guiding the embryo to the fallopian tube and, put, and, and planting it in the uterus, right? Which is absolutely false, right? If you have an atopic pregnancy, there's, there's no way to save that pregnancy. And he was like, why can't you just push the embryo down the tube and have it, why don't we do that? Uh, and these are people clearly trying to legislate aspects about women's health that uh, they know very little of, right? So I think that's the main concern. So in general, I think instead of telling men 
you know, shut up, you have no voice here. I think it's important to instead say something like, you should pay attention to the people whose voice are matters more, or people who are directly affected by this issue. Uh, listen to their voices and don't exclude them from the conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Jack, uh, in order to be pro-life about abortion, it seems that one needs to think that abortion is killing, perhaps even murder, um, since there doesn't seem to be another reason to be opposed to it. But if one thinks that abortion is as serious as that, how can this be a matter for civil dialogue? How do you respond to a fellow pro-lifer who thinks that there's no room for dialogue on abortion since the issue is just too dire? Uh, likewise, thanks for having us out here and you know, taking the time out. Um, I'll just, uh, I want to say three things about that. One is that uh, this, this, this idea about killing, um, first I want to say that when people use the term murder about abortion, I actually think that's just the wrong term, right? Uh, I think that's, that's not an appropriate term to use in that context, right? Um, could be my mic, could be somebody else's, I don't know. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so I don't think that's the right term to use because if you look at penal codes, uh, you know, if if you're looking at something like murder, what needs to be what needs to happen in that case is what's called malice aforethought. Okay, uh, and I think it's pretty implausible to think that abortion is the kind of thing where there's malice going on, at least in the vast majority of cases, right? Uh, and so, so again, I think that's it. it you know. Uh, a better term could be just, you know, homicide because it is the end of a life, but that's just a term a coroner could figure out, right? That, that doesn't have anything to do with culpability or responsibility, right? Um, so I don't call abortion murder, and I think it's, uh, you know, I think what we need to recognize is that it's uh, usually the kind of thing, right, that people turn to because they're already in uh, a desperate situation, right? Uh, and we need compassion when that's the kind of situation we're talking about. Um, for, for Bertha and I, right, I mean, the, the thing about uh, dialogue, friendship is a, is a case where, you know, you can't, we actually need to be able to talk with one another, right? Uh, we actually are able to just talk with one another and uh, no matter on what issue, right, you're gonna have friends across ideological divides and if you can't talk with them, Right, uh, even about uh, hard, difficult, grave, right, uh, you know, uh, issues, then you're just not engaged in real friendship. I mean, we can all, in, we can all just have ideological buddies, right, uh, but that's not really what's going on in friendship, right? Uh, and so if you wanna have genuine friends, right, uh, then I think you, you need to at least be able to understand that people are gonna form different opinions than you and you need to get, get to a place where you can talk about them, right? Uh, and then just a, one last word about uh, dialogue. I think that, um, I mean, abortion is the kind of issue uh, that people have been disagreeing about for a long time, in fact, thousands of years, right? Uh, we tend to think that it's sort of this, uh, this new issue, right, uh, in some ways, because maybe we've got more interesting medical technology, but actually, right, uh, it's the kind of thing that people have been talking about for thousands of years, 
right? Uh, I mean, Plato himself advocates infanticide in the Republic, right? Uh, but we don't think that, you know, the Republic is unreadable. We don't think that, uh, you know, you can't read Plato, right? Uh, you gotta have enough bandwidth, right, uh, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, right, uh, to actually, uh, you know, learn about what the other side's saying, right? Uh, and, you know, again, I, I just think that, you know, that's, that's just a case where um, this is a kind of issue where intelligent people can disagree, and they have for a long time, right? And so let's give it a shot. Great, thank you. Um, and this question I'd like each of you to uh, address, and uh, because this is a, a big question that gives you latitude for laying out uh, the major outlines of your positions, um, uh, I'd like each of you to feel free to take extended time uh, in answering the question. Um, at Whitworth, we tend to talk a lot about worldview and how being reflective about worldview helps us in framing our choices and views on socially important matters. Um, please briefly tell us what aspects of your own worldview are most relevant to your views on abortion. That's a really good question, by the way. I had to think a lot about that. <laughs> I've had kids will agree with, my worldview was drastically changed by having children. Um, so I'll tell you, and each child did their own work for, for me for, for this issue. So before my first child, so I was, I've been pro-choice for a while. I wasn't always pro-choice. I used to be pro-life when I was younger. Um, um, but I was a different kind of pro-choice. I was one of those like, it's just a clump of cells. It's just tissue. It's just, a, you know, products. It's not, it's not human. It's not a life, whatever. Um, I was like that. And was like that for quite a while, and then got pregnant with the child that's now 11 years old, and um, had a an existential moment of of I don't know what else to call it a life changing event the first the very first ultrasound I had because it, she it was only like 11 weeks so it wasn't that much into the pregnancy, and and she was and she was already so baby like right she was she was you can tell her. You know, uh, she was moving around, and like, and the and the technician would push on my stomach, and she'd be like, "What?" And like, she would move around. She would do like little summer slots, um, and it was it was it was beautiful, and there was so much awe there, and I could not any longer, in good conscience, continue arguing from a pro-choice perspective in the way that I had been doing. Um, so it, it filled me with a lot, a deeper appreciation for the pro-life perspective of it's a human life, it's a human life that matters, it's a human life with value. Um, and and I, I changed my mind about that in the, in the 20 minutes we were in that ultrasound. So that was one child. The other child, uh, who's now six, um, you know, I had a lot of, um, I was older and I had a lot more health complications with her some of those health complications that have become permanent. And, um, you know, my health was affected, but that's something that I chose to do. I really wanted her. Uh, and I, you know, we, we tried a long time for her, so I really wanted her. Um, and I think some people who are pro-life forget the very real danger that can come in a pregnancy to a woman's health and to a woman's life. So you have things like, you know, gestational diabetes, hypertension, preeclampsia, which can lead to a stroke, 
uh, deep vein thrombosis. You can have extreme morning sickness that will hospitalize you. Uh, I know a woman who had a stellar pregnancy. I mean, no morning sickness, nothing. And then had a traumatic childbirth that her, she had to learn to rewalk. She had to learn to rewalk, yeah, learn to walk. Relearn how to walk, excuse me. And now has a, um, a cane that she needs to have if she's going to be um, standing for an, ex an extended amount of time. And that's permanent for her. And so the experience with my second child showed me that this is some, and, and another thing that the U, I wrote, I looked this up, that currently the U.S. has the worst rate of maternal death in the developed world, right? So you're putting your life on the line when you are pregnant and giving birth a lot of times. And I think people tend to forget that. So with my second child, it really came home to me that, man, this is really not something that anybody should ever be forced to do. This is something that if you're going to do, it has to be voluntary. Um, so each child uh, fed into my abortion perspective in their own unique way. Thank you. Jack, what would you say about this question? Uh, well, I'll give it a shot. Uh, the, um, yeah, so I mean, I've, I mean, my views have certainly changed and developed over the years too, right? I mean, uh, I can remember a time when, when I was just instinctively pro-choice as well, right? Uh, and uh, you know, um, and and you know, I don't, uh, you know, there's a lot of time that's gone by since then, but, uh, but yeah, so. Um, so I'm pro-life because I think that uh, abortion is an, an act against a vulnerable party, right? Uh, and I think that the vulnerable party in this case right, uh, is the unborn child. Now, by the way, sometimes I'll talk about, uh, you know, could at various stages of development. Sometimes we'll talk, we'll, we'll be meaning a conceptus, an embryo, a fetus, uh, you know, whatever you might want to say. There's a few different terms you could use, zygote, that kind of thing, at various stages of development. Sometimes I'll just use fetus as shorthand for all of that, okay? Um, and so I think that uh, we're talking about an action against a vulnerable party, an innocent vulnerable party, right? Uh, and, you know, uh, but I, you know, a lot of times people think that there's an objection here that to be really pro-life you need to be, you know, uh, well, I'll just list some, right? Uh, you know, you should reject capital punishment, you should, uh, you know, uh, see a robust law for, or a role for the law in subverting economic, racial, and other forms of injustice, right? Uh, you should have robust gun control, family leave policies, uh, compassionate immigration policies, and reject euthanasia. I do all of those things, right? Or at least I think they're all true, right? Uh, that doesn't mean I'm very good at them, but it does mean that I think they're all true, right? Uh, and I do think that they're part of a serious pro-life vision, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but now in order to actually talk about uh, abortion in particular, right? Um, you need to do two things. One, you need to explain why the fetus is the kind of entity that we think uh, needs, needs moral treatment, deserves moral treatment. You need to do that, right? And the other thing you need to do is you need to talk about far enough to the point where, right, uh, the woman shouldn't have the ability to terminate its life, right? Uh, so let's talk about the first one for just a couple minutes, right? Um, so I think that what I am Right, and, and I, this is going to be something that Bertha and I disagree about. 
right? I, I actually do think that I was once an embryo, right? Uh, I, I think that what I am is, right, uh, you know, uh, the, the living human animal that you all see right here, right? That's what I think I am, right? That's part of my worldview, right? Uh, that, that's, that's what I think I am. I think I'm the living human animal you see right now, right? That means that what I am is an organic life form, right? Uh, it means that uh, my organic life form has a trajectory that began at a certain point, right? Uh, began at a very, very small and, you know, much less developed state, right? Uh, and has progressed through that state to the point where I am now. Right, rightly or well or whatever or wrongly or badly, I don't know, right? But that's what I think, right? I think I'm the organic living human animal we're talking about right now or that's doing the talking, right? I don't think that what I am is a consciousness, right? I don't think that I am a consciousness, right? Uh, I'm not even sure what exactly a consciousness is, right? I don't know. When does it start? How do we know that it starts? Right? Uh, I don't know exactly. I mean, actually, this is one of the hardest questions that exists when you're talking about an area like the philosophy of mind. This is a really hard question, and we don't have clear answers to just what exactly a consciousness is, when it starts and stops, and why it starts and stops. So I don't think that consciousness, or the onset of consciousness, is the best point to talk about for when a being gets rights and when it doesn't, because I don't know how we're going to be able to pinpoint that. Right? I think I'm the living human animal, and I don't think that depends on when I have consciousness. Right? Um, I do think, you know, uh, so, so I think in a, you know, a, a, a deliberative democracy where, where we're going to be sort of bandying about lots of different ideas, right, I think that what we can probably agree on is that the human beings we interact with on a, in a day-to-day -day level are the ones that deserve moral treatment. Well, how far back does that go? And I think we need to appeal to the organic living human animal that we're talking about to get there. So, um, now let's do the second thing for a second, okay? Um, so I think pregnancy is surpassingly unique, right? Uh, I don't think there's another state that's like it. Right? And I think that's really important to recognize, right? Uh, there just isn't another state like it. Um, and we're not always going to be able to, to draw on analogies that, that do all the right work. Sometimes pregnancy is just really unique, okay? Um, but uh, I do think that uh, when we're talking about what right, uh, can be done, what, what can be done that might impact the life of the fetus, right? Uh, I think that since the fetus, I think, is also a living human animal, right? Uh, it, too, has claims that it can assert about, about its autonomy. That is, its autonomy, its life, shouldn't be infringed upon, right? Uh, and so, and so that's, that's uh, that's part of the view, right? Um, I also think that uh, that it, you know, and, and part of part of the difficulty with the unique state of pregnancy is that it does, right, uh, uniquely call, uh, uniquely 
entail certain burdens uh, that only the woman can assume, right? And I just think that pregnancy is that unique a state. I don't think there's another answer to just equalize all of that, right? It's, we're not, we're not atoms, we're, we're different in that way, right? We just, there isn't, there isn't a, a way to just sort of change that, right? Um, I also think that just two quick things about one worldview and then I'll shut up, right? Uh, uh, is that, you know, because Carol asked about worldview, right? Uh, I think that, you know, a, a direct act against an innocent, vulnerable party is a, a wrong and it's non-consequentially wrong, right? I don't think that we, we need to ask what's to be gained by it, right? I think it's just wrong, right? Um, and I also think that... Uh, we are political animals, right? And so I think our society, the way we tend to think about uh, a liberal democracy, too often can drive us apart. But I actually think there are certain obligations that we owe to one another that should make us come closer together, right? Uh, and, you know, we should, it might be the case that uh, a woman might need to assume a special burden in pregnancy, but that should also, that should also mean that as a society we have a, a great grave need right to, to to offer special solicitude to the women that are assuming that burden right. um, so i think that's where else. okay well um this is called a dialogue and uh so i'd like to invite the two of you uh to talk to one another about what you've just said and so what questions or uh, things uh, would you like to highlight that you either heard that you agreed with or would say differently or take a different stance on or feel as if the other person should notice uh, more of uh, in thinking hard about this issue? I have a question actually. Okay. How do you reconcile so I'm assuming given that you're that you're Catholic, that you believe, right? This is a really complex question, yeah, right. but sure, yeah. So okay. I guess my question is, how do you reconcile animalism with the belief in immaterial souls? Yeah, so uh, so that's a really good question, right? Uh, and it's a little early for that really good question, but <laughs> I'll give she it a try. Asked the question. Right? Um, but I'll give it a try, right? Uh, so, so I think that what we should do, right, uh, as, a, as a society in a deliberative democracy is just sort of realize that uh, who we are, right, are, we are the living human animals, right, uh, that we uh, interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. I haven't told you metaphysically what it takes to be a living human animal, right? And I don't think that necessarily needs to be, uh, you know, we, could, we might have different views about what it takes to be a living human animal, right? And our, and our democracy might tolerate a few different explanations about what it might take to be that living human animal. Personally, I actually think you do need, uh, you know, uh, some concept of a soul in order to ultimately explain, right, how you get that living human animal. But there are other okay. people who don't think that. They just think that I'm this living human animal and there's no role for the concept of a soul. Right. But we could still both agree that I'm the living human animal. 
right? So that, that's just the short right response to how I'd give a try to, to say that. I mean, it would take a lot to try to explain why I think, right, uh, you know, uh, that you might need to call in that concept of the soul, but, uh, yeah. Um, and I feel bad because I should have been writing down more things while you were talking, right, uh, because now I'm trying to think of what I might want to ask you, right? Uh, um, but maybe, maybe if I can just, uh, you know, uh, needle you a little bit about, sure. um, you know, uh, what, what kind of, what, I mean, because one of the things that is sometimes at stake in this debate is that um, there's a famous writer uh, that, uh, that began this line of argument, right, uh, that says that uh, abortion might, might be permissible even if the fetus is a person. Okay. Right, uh, it's Judith Jarvis Thompson, and she, uh, at one point in her essay, right, says she, who's a pro-choice writer, says that there might be some getting an abortion would be what she calls indecent. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, again, those are her words. Right, uh, and I, I'm just, I guess, I just like. It doesn't necessarily have to be specifically about the abortion case, but like. What level of decency do you think we owe one another in society? Like, you know, what, like, how much decency do you think, right, uh, is called for, right? So this actually relates back to the conversation we were having at dinner about rights and what is a right. Um, I do think, so, I already kind of told you, well, I do think that women ultimately have a right to get an abortion. I don't think that's the end of the conversation. Um, and I don't think every single exercise of that right is decent. Right? Um, I know I'll, this is the, the most indecent one I've ever encountered, so I'll just tell the story of a woman I know that um, had an affair with a person of a different race and then got pregnant and uh, had the abortion because she didn't want a mixed-race child. That to me is an incredibly indecent reason to get an abortion. Uh, do I believe that ultimately she, she had that right? I, yeah, I, I do um, get an abortion. You get an abortion and you get an abortion, but not you. Um, so I think that it's, I don't wanna go down that path, but um, I think there's absolutely levels of decency that we owe to each other, whether I think that can be enforced by the state is a different question. Uh, I think, for example, that if, um, if, for, if heaven forbid you needed a bone marrow um, transfer and I was a match, I would be there in a split second. Um, but I don't think that the government has any role in forcing me to give my bone marrow to you. Uh, and so I think when it comes to abortion, I think we need to separate cause of decency and indecency with what can the state demand of a woman. I think those are two separate questions. So it could very well be that morally, some women are, um, would be, it, would be, it would be morally right in terms of decency to continue a pregnancy. That's a separate question, I think, from whether can the state compel a woman to continue that pregnancy. I think that's the case for a lot of 
um, Good Samaritan type things. Mm -hmm. right? um, so maybe I would uh, follow up with then a question for Jack. Uh, you, you asked Bertha, um, you know, when would it be indecent uh, to, uh, for a woman to exercise her, what Bertha thinks of as her right for an abortion? Um, what I'm wondering is uh, to push the limit on the um, pro-life side, um, do you think there are circumstances in which you're deeply uncomfortable with requiring a woman to continue with a pregnancy, um, beca either because of how the pregnancy came about or because of the risk it puts her in? Sure, and so, um, I mean, is this kind of moving in the direction of this next uh, question? Are we okay with that one, or is that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I mean, um, so, so there are going to be some hard, uh, you know, points for any theory, right, for any view of the world, right, uh, and uh, there are definitely uh, cases where it's very difficult, right, uh, to continue to, to claim that, right, uh, abortion is, you know, just not available, right. Um, you know, there are definitely moral questions where abortion is a simpler, right, uh, response to the, uh, the predicament, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, so, like, for instance, if you wanted to take, you know, the case of rape, right, uh, you know, that's, that's a hard, right, uh, point for any particular uh, pro-life view, right? Um, now, so I'll, I'll, I'll just say a little bit about that, right, uh, in... Well, before I do, though, uh, I, I might I might just there, there is one there is there is something that's worth saying as a clarification, though, too, right? Which is, um, so for instance, take an ectopic pregnancy, right? Take an ectopic pregnancy where uh, the fetus, the embryo, is lodged within uh, the fallopian tube, right? Uh, and if the fallopian tube were to rupture, right, uh, it'd kill the woman, and if, right. Uh, you know, uh, you might worry that you can't remove the embryo, right, because it would kill the embryo, right? Uh, but actually, right, uh, serious pro-life writers understand that this is a case of what's called double effect. You could remove, right, uh, a portion of the tube, right? Uh, you, you don't directly intend, uh, you know, the death of the embryo, but uh, there are circumstances in which, right, uh, it would still be permissible, right, uh, to to try to remove, right, uh, the danger to the woman, right, uh, you know, uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, it might result in some unintended harm to the embryo, right? That's actually something that serious pro-life writers are okay with in the right context, right? Um, but but let's let's talk about the uh, the question of rape for a moment, right? So in order to answer this question, I'm going to bring up. Uh, I feel like I'm talking too much. Right, uh, but I'll try to stop um, uh, soon. Uh, 
So in order to answer this question, I'm going to bring up the case of a writer uh, called Soren Reeder, right, late Soren Reeder. Uh, and uh, she wrote an article where she was arguing, right, uh, a few different things, right? She argued that uh, the adoption of children conceived through rape was uh, what she called beyond the moral pale, right? Uh, she also suggested that aborting children conceived through rape may be morally required, right? Uh, she finally claimed that fetuses conceived through rape had what she called a negative moral status, right? Uh, now let's think about that for a second, okay? You and I, in having rights to moral treatment, have what philosophers like to call positive moral status, right? We have positive moral status because we, we should be accorded moral treatment. We should be, you know, respected, right? We have dignity, right? Uh, and, you know, but she actually argued that fetuses conceived through rape had a negative moral status, right? Uh, and to have a negative moral status, I mean, it, it means that the world should be rid of something that has negative moral status. And that's just extremely troubling to me, right? Uh, now, I think that's over the top, right? I think that's too much to say, right? Uh, and I think there are, you know, plenty of people actually, right, uh, some of whom, right, we might have bumped into and not known it, right, uh, that were conceived through rape, or, or they might have been conceived in other less grievous but still dubious circumstances, right? And when did they acquire the positive moral status that they now have? Right? When did that happen? Right. And to answer that question, you're, you're going to have to talk about what the fetus is regardless of what origin it might have had. Okay. And that's a difficult thing, but I still think that, you know, in this case the fetus is the kind of thing that deserves moral treatment. And I don't think that hangs on whether it had, um, you know, a really dubious or a really morally problematic origin. I just don't think it hangs on that. Um, you are um, people who appreciate the complexities of this debate. Um, and of um, the variety of questions around it. Um, this debate has a standard rhetoric, a standard vocabulary. Um, what, uh, what weighs in, perhaps even the term debate as opposed to dialogue, but uh, sit uncomfortably with you, uh, since it's often framed as as something that has two sides, and you've each identified as being on a side, uh, what parts of your side's vocabulary would you wish um, would be rethought? What terms do you find harder to mesh with your own views on the topic? So I really, really hate the term pro-abortion and the way it's conflated with being pro-choice. Um, because I'm not, in f I, I, I don't celebrate abortions, right? I don't, 
I don't go to abortion clinics and cheer, cheer the woman on or anything. Um, what I am is a, an advocate of, of reproductive choice, which means that if a woman uh, wants an abortion, there should be, uh, society should provide the, uh, the means for her to get that. If she, wants to, if she wants to keep the child and raise it, I believe society, we should have a society that allows her to do that. Um, and we don't currently have that society. Right? Single mothers make up one of the poorest demographics in the United States, right? Uh, if we really genuinely, and I know, and this is something that I know Jack agrees with me with, if we really genuinely care about, about people keeping their babies when they're unplanned, we should try to create a society that isn't so hostile to women raising children, especially by themselves. Uh, if a woman uh, chooses abortion when she otherwise would have kept the child because of force, that's a type of coercion. She's coerced by her finances and by where she stands uh, financially in society. So if a woman wants to keep her baby, I think not only should be, she be allowed to keep her baby, I think she should live in a society that helps her keep her baby. Uh, if a woman wants to give a baby up for adoption, I think we should live in a society that allows her to do that and that um, you know, makes it so that adoption is a safe choice, that the child isn't going to spend the entirety of its life in, a foster, in foster care or, or of the sort. So I, I, I hate the term pro-abortion because it makes me feel like people think that I think abortions are something to be celebrated. Um, and I don't think that. Um, I, what, I, like I, what I believe is a genuine reproductive choice. I think women should be allowed to make the choices, whatever choices they want in terms of their reproductive lives, and that we as a society should make a world in which those choices are most mesh with what she wants. So, um, yeah, get rid of pro-abortion. I, I really hate that term. Okay. Uh, what about you, Jack? Um, well... So sometimes people use a term like uh, anti-choice, right? Uh, which uh, is tricky because on the one hand, it's often deserved, right? Uh, but it's also not uh, a, a term that should really reflect what I take to be a, a genuinely pro-life viewpoint, right? Um, there really are uh, lots of people who seem right, uh, to think that, uh, you know, that concentrating just on the abortion issue, right, is enough, right? Um, but, uh, but really, I, I mean, this is where Bertha and I agree about a lot, right? Uh, we think that, uh, you know, in order to actually address and care about, right, a question as large as abortion, you ought to care about all uh, all the precipitating factors, right, uh, that might put someone into that position. So on the one hand, I prefer that uh, we uh, use the term like pro-life because I think that abortion and, and the opposition to abortion should be understood within a larger pro-life view, view or worldview, right, where, right, um, you know, one was one took positive steps, right, uh, both in one's view of society and in one's actions personally, right, uh, to bring about a world where people were cared for in a way that would ultimately lead to less abortions. It doesn't mean that I think any one abortion is the kind of thing we could just turn a blind eye to, but, um, but I do think, right, uh, it should be part of a sort of full-orbed view of the world. And it also means that I really 
can't stand it when, uh, you know, uh, one political party will use this issue to manipulate, often use it to alienate people, right? Uh, and I think, right, uh, so it just sort of leads to a, a certain way in which I find, right, uh, our current uh, political system in America to be really frustrating because I don't think you're going to get at uh, what turns out to be a really uh, well-rounded pro-life view uh, in the context of American politics right now. So yeah, like to agree with Jack, I'm all for creating a society where abortions are increasingly rare. Um, I think that's, that's a laudable goal and, and um, I don't think that I don't think that one way we get there is by prohibiting them. I think that there's a lot of evidence that uh, criminalizing abortions does very little to stop them. But I do think there's a lot of evidence that there are things that work, and those things that work are, you know, robust social safety net programs to keep people, to keep women and single mothers in particular out of poverty. Um, and insofar as that works to reduce abortions, I'm all for trying to build a society where. Uh, where we address things like poverty and the reasons, uh, look, let's look at the reasons why people get an abortion and then try to deal with those reasons rather than try to criminalize the abortion. That's, that's an interesting point though because uh, not in a position to recall you know, the, the Clinton years, right? Uh, but, you know, uh, but there was a mantra in those years that went yeah. abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And rare, right. right. And that one dropped out. Right. Did it really? In a lot of platforms since I then, didn't yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, in in some of, in some of the platforms uh, more recently, right? Uh, you know, safe and legal will appear, but a lot of times rare will mm. not. Right. Uh, so. Well, so I um, uh, I'm going to be framing one more question, but while I'm doing that, I'm going to have John go up and down the aisles and. Uh, corral your cards so that we can switch to uh, the audience's questions. But I think uh, in some ways you've just modeled uh, some of what you do in your book because one interesting feature of this book that makes it a little bit rare is that the authors actually have a chapter here on what, con what they converge on, what they agree about. And some of uh, what we've heard is that uh, social safety net. Um, but I do want to, I want to ask uh, this question about uh, the fact that you, you've talked with one another for a long time about these issues and you're both really smart people uh, that have some research expertise in this topic. Um, maybe you've uh, changed your minds a little bit in uh, the area of convergence, um, but you're still really on opposite sides in many ways of this issue. So um, what, what practically is a way forward in a society where there is going to be always a, um, a sharp difference of opinion mm -hmm. on these issues? Why keep talking to one another if, uh, uh, we're not going to be able to figure out the one true opinion to <laughs> take up on this question. I think the assumption there is that the only thing that's valuable is the answer. Um, I think the process of civil dialogue is in itself valuable. 
even if you never get to the right answer. Uh, that's not to say that I don't think there is a right answer. I think there is a right answer. But you know, we've 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 grown up with this mantra that you, the, the two things you don't discuss are what is it, politics and religion. And I think that the the outcome of of staying away from hard topics is we have not cultivated the ability to talk to each other about these hard topics. Right? We say that ignore them. You know, try to go one Thanksgiving without bringing up politics or something. Uh, and then, but what happens when you, for whatever reason, do end up uh, bringing up politics, people get into these f horrible fights. Uh, I think it's pretty sad that we don't, we don't teach people how to civilly disagree with each other. Uh, so the idea that what's the point because there's no ultimate right answer, we're not going to get to the right answer, I think that that prizes the answer above the journey. And I think the journey uh, into civil dialogue is good in its, for its own sake. Not just because what it does, not just because it cultivates friendships, but what it does to my mind, right? I am a vastly better teacher because of civil dialogue than I would have been without it. How, how am I supposed to fairly listen to my students, even when they disagree with me, if I didn't think civil dialogue was valuable, if I didn't think listening to the opposing side was valuable? I think I'd be a pretty bad teacher if I couldn't do that. Um, so I think that just, the journey of, de of debate in itself is intrinsically good, regardless of whether or not we get to a final answer. Um, yeah, and so um, I want to say a couple things about that. One is that, uh, um, but we, we have principles, otherwise we wouldn't disagree, right? We're people of conscience, right? Uh, and we can, you know, in recognizing the fact that we're people of conscience, right, that, that's, a, that's enough, right, uh, for us to build something on, right? All right, uh, then we can find, given that we're people of conscience, we can sort of, uh, you know, if we, if we didn't have moral convictions, we wouldn't be people of conscience, but we are, and we do, right? So what else can we talk about, right, uh, that our conscience could extend to, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, dialogue can help us be humble. It can help us yeah. be self-critical. Right, uh, and, uh, and that kind of thing, right? Uh, it's also, I'll just, I just want to invoke a, um, I'll just read a short passage, right? Uh, so I'm Catholic, and, uh, and there's, um, so Pope John Paul II, who, uh, gosh, died in, I think, 2004, um, actually, you know, wrote a lot about uh, the abortion issue, right? Uh, and he said, he said this, he said, in a case like the one just mentioned, when it's not possible to overturn or completely abrogate a particular law, uh, let's call it a pro-choice law that has to do with abortion, uh, he says, an elected official whose absolute personal opposition to procured abortion was well known, that person could lawfully, licitly support proposals aimed at limiting the harm done by such a law and at lessening its negative consequences at the level present an illicit cooperation with an unjust law, but rather a legitimate and proper attempt to limit its evil aspects, right? So there's still a lot we can do just by talking with one another. There's still a lot we can sort of work toward in terms of what, what can we do as, as people of conscience that, um, you know, when we have these conversations, you know, what, what, what might it take if you're willing to recognize that, uh, uh, you know, abortion should be rare, right? Uh, what could we do to, 
to help that goal come about. Right. Right. Uh, you know, um, that doesn't mean that I'm going to get everything she I want, and it might mean that she's not going to get everything she wants. Right. Uh, but that's. That's how it works in a deliberative democracy. People need to lay some things down sometimes so that we can live together and figure it out, right? Um, and, and I mean, even someone as staunchly uh, pro-life as John Paul II, right, uh, is willing to say, yeah, that, that's right. We need to find ways to, here, to, to work together even if you're not gonna get everything that you want. Great, thank you. Um, well, I think we need about five more hours uh, to cover all of these questions. So I'm gonna have to be uh, selective. I also invite uh, people in the audience. Uh, we're not gonna have time for all of these, uh, but um, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, Dr. Mulder and Dr. Menenin will uh, stay around uh, afterwards for pressing questions. Um, but also, I encourage you to talk with one another and uh, with faculty here at Whitworth about a lot of these questions because many of them are exceedingly important. Um, so what I've been doing is trying to sort them into clusters and try to uh, see where the center of gravity is. There, there are several questions actually about uh, the connection between uh, sex education mm -hmm. and uh, and the abortion issue. And so, um, are you in favor of sex education? Are uh, maybe for Jack, I'd frame this. Do you are you uh, more prone to think of of absences only uh, sex education as a preferred mode, given that you're pro life? Um, uh, and or um, for Bertha, um, you know, how would you see the role of uh, sex education yeah. in the goal that you mentioned of yeah. making uh, abortions rare? No, that's a great question. I think that we have, that's something actually that we talk about in the jointly written chapter. Um, and we do have some differences there. I don't, I don't think they're as pronounced as you would think, um, but, you know, I, I've done I've done a lot of research, and you know, you know, the states with the highest teen pregnancy rates are the states that either have don't have any any sex ed or have abstinence only sex ed. Um, like Mississippi is really high. Uh, I think New Mexico is really high, um, and I think we have a we have an overabundance of evidence that the two things that work, uh, other than social safety net programs, are contraception and sex ed, right? And this should not be surprising to us, right? If you want to um, avoid abortions, avoid unplanned pregnancies. And how do you do that? By giving people access to contraception and teaching them how to use it correctly. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm gun-ho off, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm in Arizona, and Arizona is one of the states that um, does not require medically accurate sex education. Which is to me really so. So it's interesting. So like, it allows for blatantly dishonest stuff. You know, I, I'm not sure how that works, but it's not required. So yeah, you know, I'm all I'm all in favor of. You want contraception? Go for it. And if you want, uh, and we should have sex ed in schools, and they should be medically accurate. Um, I have absolutely no problems with either of those. 
so there's a few things to say about this. One, uh, I think we can set up a false dichotomy between right, uh, what we often call abstinence-only programs in sex education and uh, what we sometimes call comprehensive sex education programs. So I think sometimes th there can be a, a false dichotomy um, because, all right, uh, on the one hand, if you're talking about abstinence-only programs, right, uh, I think there are people out there in the universe who seem to have a pathological fear of sex, right? Uh, and that's not getting us anywhere, right? Uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, right, uh, there are uh, programs, right, uh, that fly under the flag of comprehensive views of, of sex education that in my view are fairly permissive, right? Uh, and that in um, a lot of those permissive views of sex are not gonna lead to pregnancies that are welcome and wanted. Because it turns out that sex, uh, at least, right, um, heterosexual coitus <laughs> is the kind of act that can lead to human life. Right, and there's no other act, right, uh, short of being in the lab with all the right equipment that's gonna lead to human life, okay? Uh, a new human life, right? And that fact should make us think real carefully, right, about when we engage in it, with whom we engage in it, and why we're engaging it, in it, okay? And so I think that uh, there's a cavalier view of sex that can come about, right? Uh, and so not only do we need medically accurate sex education, but we also need ethically significant. That's and pornography isn't helping, right? Uh, you know, uh, it, it's, I don't think it's going too far to say that it's a public health crisis, right? Uh, and it's aggravating the the problem, right, of when we're getting pregnancies that are welcome and wanted, right, uh, and when we're not, okay? Uh, so I think that we need sex education that is biologically accurate, right, and I think we need a sex education that appreciates the ethical significance of sex, right? And I don't think that we always get the one over here and we always get the one over here, right? And so there's a false dichotomy, and I think we need to be careful about that, right? Um, now, uh, I mean, on one hand, I, I, I could probably leave it at that. That's probably okay. fine. Great. Uh, thank you. Those, that, um, that's helpful. The, um, I think the next most popular cluster of questions um, has to do uh, with uh, coming back to the beginning um, of uh, the dialogue, um, there are several people who are worried about uh, uh, the, um, uh, the standing of males mm -hmm. in the choice, uh, either for continuing a pregnancy or for uh, terminating a pregnancy. Um, so what is the standing of um, the father yeah. uh, uh, coming to a, a choice and right. uh, how do we sort that out? Yeah, I actually wrote an article on this and I have a chapter in my book about this. Um, I don't think in the end 
that it would be advisable to give men veto power over a woman's abortion. Uh, I think in the end, um, because think about what that would mean. That would mean that you could, that a man could force a woman to give birth. Um, to me, that just seems really problematic. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's, that goes back to the question of rights versus decency, right? In the end, I think a man can't impede a woman's right to get an abortion. I don't think that means, however, that a woman isn't under some other moral obligation uh, to include a man in her abortion decision. Now, barring certain situations, right, if we have a, a situation where there's an abusive relationship or abusive husband or abusive boyfriend, uh, I think that's a different issue. I'm not going to say that a woman is morally required to consult with her abusive partner about whether or not they should get an abortion. But, um, you know, with that withstanding, uh, while, I, while I don't think that men can have a right to veto a woman's abortion decision, I do think women have a, an, another a moral obligation to bring men into the conversation as much as possible. That's the more clear, most clear-cut answer I can give. Yeah. Uh, Jack, do you have anything to say about um, Probably shouldn't say much about that one, but, uh, but, uh, but I might just indicate that, uh, well, obviously I'm pro-life to begin with, so I'm not going to engage much in the question of who has veto power and who doesn't, because I don't think people, it doesn't really affect my position. But, uh, but I do think that, uh, so Rosalind Hursthaus has, has this famous line where she says that nature bears harder on women. Actually, that is right. I think that's right, right. Uh, and so uh, I think that men have a, a special solicitude and ought, should, should recognize a special debt that they owe to women, right? Uh, and that's it. Uh, that's pretty much all I'd want to say. So I, I mean, I would, I would want to say that insofar as, uh, you know, you wanted to prioritize someone's say in uh, the question of the gestation of the fetus, I would think that the woman would have a certain priority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so a couple of questions uh, that uh, show up fair, uh, fairly often here, I think, are, are mainly to Bertha. And then there's a cluster that I think uh, would be mainly to Jack. So um, uh, you. You've talked about the fact that you would want a world in which um, abortions become rarer mm -hmm. and rarer. Doesn't that in and of itself imply that there's something morally problematic? Sure. Um, and so, sure, okay. So here's, a, here's another um, um, set of questions in that cluster. Um, Aren't you worried that especially in a society where people seem to have a really legal yeah. and something being morally permissible, <laughs> that uh, uh, having uh, abortions be uh, legally permitted up to a fairly late stage will make it impossible to make abortions rare? So, okay, so... I'm not clear on the question uh, exactly. So uh, another way of framing it is, do you think that um, legalized abortion 
is likely, here's, here's the way this smart student put it. Okay. Um, do you fear that abortion being completely legal will lead to a sense of normalcy and a lack of concern okay. Okay. Um, for the seriousness of the choice Got to it. have an abortion? So let, I want to first kind of push back on the issue of abortion being completely legal. Um, I'm not typically, I, I don't know what the student had in mind, but typically when people say that, what they mean is that you can get an abortion easily anytime from the time you're pregnant to like the day before the baby's born or something, right? That's, that's not true. Uh, I think like 41 out of our 50 states uh, have a cutoff line for when this, the, uh, a woman can get an abortion. And some of it is in viability, some is about 20 weeks, some is about 25 weeks. I think only, I don't know if it's only, but Colorado and New York are currently two states that would allow for a late abortion. But most states do have a cutoff line for when a woman can get an abortion, unless it's some horrible situation where her life is on the line or something. So this idea that it's completely legal, I, I, I want to push back against what that might mean. Um, but you know, insofar as that, look, in, in abortion involves the taking of a human life. Uh, yeah, of course I think that's ethically problematic. Um, but I don't, you know, I, not, there, I think there's a lot of things that are ethical. I think euthanasia is ethically problematic, but I do think that we still need to have a discussion about euthanasia in our society. I think the death penalty is very morally problematic, and we don't talk as much about that as we should. Uh, so there's a lots of time, there's a lot of instances, a lot of issues that are morally problematic that, that as a society, we have legalized or we haven't legalized. It doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation about it. We should, we absolutely should. Um, but you know, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm with Jack about that we need to start teaching you know, the sex, sexual morality more. I do think that people, I do think that if we took sex more seriously and took the fact that it can create a human life more seriously, we would see a lot less abortions and a lot, a lot of people would be more careful about whether or not they're getting an abortion. Um, in terms of uh, later abortions, this is something that you brought up to ask me, and we didn't get around to it. In terms of late abortions, uh, how do I feel about those? Well, I think that um, it's important first to, to, to put, the, put it in perspective. I think the, the statistics I got from the center, I have it here, from the Center for Disease Control is that 80% of abortions take place in the first trimester, 98.3% of abortions take place in the, before the third trimester, that means that 1.7% of abortions take place late in pregnancy. Uh, that's hardly an epidemic, right? And then of the 1.7% of pregnancies late, that do end in late abortions, the vast majority of those, which again are already quite small, are for, in, for situations of fetuses that have a health problem that is incompatible with life or would make their life very difficult to live. So. Um, a child that has Tay-Sachs, who's been diagnosed with Tay-Sachs disease, they'll probably be dead by the time they're three and will have an excruciating death, right? I think if you do the research, most of that 1.7 abortions are situations like that, right? So am I in favor of a woman walking into a, a, a clinic and said, at 38 weeks with a perfectly healthy fetus and say, yeah, you know, this, this parenthood thing isn't for me, just get rid of it. No, of course I'm not in favor of that. Uh, but I don't know anyone that is in favor of that. I think that's a caricature of the pro-choice position. Um, uh, so no, I'm not, I'm not in favor of aborting a late-term healthy fetus for a silly reason. 
But I just don't, I don't think women do that. I trust women more than that. I don't think women just saunter into an abortion clinic at 38 weeks and say, yeah, just get rid of it. I've, I've changed my mind. I think when it does happen, it's for severe medical reasons. Uh, and I think it's important to keep in mind that, again, we're talking about 1.7% of abortions. Most abortions take place before 13 weeks. Um, Jack, there are, uh, there are several people who want it understand are confused, definitely confused, uh, about you talking about uh, you being an animal. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there are a variety of questions about that. Um, you know, uh, why are human animals important, uh, more important than other animals? Uh, uh, how, since you uh, talk about yourself as being a Catholic Christian, can you think of human beings as, uh, why emphasize being um, an animal as opposed to being um, a, a uh, being created in God's image or any of those sorts of things? Sure. So uh, I think that's enough to start with. But. Okay, I'll give it a try. Um, well, uh, the image of God thing is interesting because uh, it's, it's a complicated theological uh, topic, um, but there is at least a tradition for thinking of the image of God, uh, and I don't, for any theologian out there, I'm not trying to exhaust what the image of God means by talking about it in this way, but... Uh, but, you know, uh, there is a tradition for thinking about the image of God as being, you know, those kinds of things like having a free will, having, right, uh, an intellect, having, right, uh, you know, certain unique capabilities, right, uh, you know, more moral processing, right, uh, that we think is significant, right, uh, you know, um, we can't go into right uh, all the complicated questions about what makes right uh, um, a human animal right a, a, a sort of a, a, an animal that deserves a, a very significant sort of moral treatment where it would be non consequentially morally wrong to uh, to kill that uh, that human animal but um, but I do think that. There's something special about human animals, right? Uh, and that that could have to do with their being made in the image of God, right? It doesn't mean that they have to be able to exercise those unique capacities, right? Uh, but it does mean that there being those sorts of animals, right? There being those sorts of beings, right? Uh, means they have a certain special dignity, okay? Um, at the same time, right, uh, I, I do want to shy away from, right, uh, what we might call a kind of, uh, at least a very extreme form of dualism, right? Uh, because I, I don't think I am a soul, right? I think that I am a body-soul composite. I think that I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, a living human animal that wouldn't have ever arrived on the stage of the world without both of those things, a body and a soul, right? Uh, and so, uh, 
So I want to shy away from a sort of dualist picture, right? Uh, because, you know, as a Catholic, right, God, God created the world, and uh, God created the world and said it was good, and then God created human beings and said, wow, this is very good, right? Uh, and it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, ghosts that God created at that point, right? They were bodies. They were living human bodies, right? Living human animals, right? Uh, and, you know, um, I can stop with all the theologizing, but, uh, but I actually think that's, that's ultimately the, be the better way to read what's going on uh, in Catholic theology. And if you want to talk dogma, I'm happy to do it some other time. But we can talk about it later, but yeah. Yeah, and so uh, I think I'll ask one more large uh, question, and then I'll invite people who haven't gotten their particular questions uh, answered that would uh, like to stay longer and come down uh, here and have more dialogue. Um, but there, there are various people who are interested in uh, connections between um, uh, religious stances and the abortion debate. So there, there are questions um, uh, from the asking, could it be conceivable to be a Christian and be pro-choice? Uh, there are people asking whether there are particular connections between atheism and uh, being pro-choice. Um, there are um, people who are asking um, uh, about uh, whether people whose views on abortion are religiously based have any right to impose their right. religious views on other people. So, um, so questions in that ballpark. So could each of you address um, what you think about that cluster of questions? I mean, there are, I'm, I'm aware of, there are pro-life, pro-choice Christians. I mean, I, I've met them. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, pro-choice uh, ideology in Judaism as well. Uh, I don't know um, enough about Islam to, to say either way. Um, so I know that they exist. I know that there are, there are I know that there are Catholic institutions, uh, Catholic groups that are pro-choice. Um, so those exist, and, I, and at the same time, I know plenty of secular pro-life arguments as well. Jack and I were talking about what we teach we teach about abortion, and I was talk. We talk about one particular article that uh, I. It's it's a pro-life article from a secular perspective. That interestingly enough, I like more than he does, <laughs> which is really interesting. Um, I think it's a I think it's a fairly good argument. Um, so I do know that that pro pro-choice Christians exist, and I do know that pro-life atheists exist, and I've talked to them, and so I think it's perfectly possible. Um, Insofar as religious uh, legislating something that people religiously hold, uh, that's something that I have very strong thoughts on because I tend I, I've realized that the the individuals that want to legislate certain religious views are individuals who are in the majority of that religion. If the tides were turned, I suspect they'd have very very if 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 you lived in a society where another religion was going to make the laws against you. Let's say if some other, if, if Buddhism for some reason became really huge in America and we were starting to get Buddhist laws 
that force Christians to do things the Buddhist way, I'm pretty sure the Christians would be very up in arms about that, right? Uh, so I think it's it's easy for Christians to say we should let we should legislate the law according to Christianity because that's your religion. If it wasn't your religion, you'd have very very different views about it. And I invite people to keep that in mind. Right. Yeah. So um, obviously there are pro-choice Christians. I mean, they're not hard to find, right? Uh, Probably there are plenty in this room, right? Uh, um, you know, and I don't, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Christians disagree about a lot, right? Uh, you know, um, we disagree about lots of different ways to read the Bible. We disagree about, you know, uh, whether the Bible, right, uh, is, is sort of the only infallible uh, rule for faith, right? Uh, we disagree about lots of things. Right. Um, uh, so I take it as yeah, pretty pretty clear that they're pro-choice Christians, and while I don't happen to agree with them, there are all kinds of things I don't happen to agree with. Right, uh, with other Christians. So uh, yeah. So um, and of course, you know, there are eight, uh, uh, folks who right uh, don't have any particular religious background uh, who are pro-life. Right, uh, and while I mean, I don't know how active they've been uh, in regard to the sort of publishing circuit with, uh, you know, uh, the abortion issue, right? Uh, um, it's not hard to find, right, uh, authors who might be, as a matter of fact, Christian, but very, very much on purpose are trying to articulate their pro-life case without appealing to their religious faith. Right. Which you uh, do in the book. I think it's important to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, I try. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, per, I'm open about the fact that I am a Catholic uh, in, in the book, but I, I try, uh, you know, and again, there are lots of other folks who've, who've done this, but uh, I try to articulate the reason why I'm pro-life without appealing to premises that have to do with my religious faith, right? Um, and so, yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. Okay. Well, so what I'm hearing is that neither of you think that there's any tight conceptual connection no. between um, being uh, religious and particularly being Christian. And so it's not just that there are people who are confused and inconsistent. Right. And, and mm. So it's yeah. not just a sociological right. claim, but you think that there isn't. It's also a conceptual connection. Sorry, Carol. Yeah, go ahead. But I mean, it's also worth pointing out that, that it's a sufficiently complicated issue that you can find both, you know, you can find the kinds of premises that would justify a pro-life standpoint in a lot of different religions, and you can find premises that would justify a pro-choice standpoint within a lot of different religious traditions. Right. It's, not, it's not like, oh, you ventured outside of Christianity, so everybody's pro-choice out there. That's just not true. Okay. Well, join me in thanking uh, Professor uh, Menenden and uh, Boulder. Thank you. Uh, 
And uh, I am sorry we didn't have time to get to all of these questions, but I am delighted that this dialogue has generated this much thinking. And so I encourage you to continue the dialogue with one another. So. Yeah, okay.